The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You guys probably remember that movie Forrest Gump. I think everybody's seen the movie Forrest Gump. Well, there's this one scene near the beginning of the movie where there's a young Forrest Gump. He's like 12 years old, and uh, he's uh, on this long dirt road. Remember this scene? He's on this long dirt road with Janae, his, his sweetheart, and uh, they're walking. And as they're walking and talking, and he's got these braces on his legs, these, this band of troublemakers come by. Do you remember the, this, this kind of, these bullies on bicycles come by to harass Forrest? And as they start to harass him and say mean things and throw rocks at him, he begins to run and his braces fall off his legs, and he starts to run like the wind. And Jenny's little heartbroken friend, she's watching as these bullies are attacking her special friend, and she says this very iconic three-word phrase. Do you remember what she says? Yeah, that's awesome. Run, Forrest, run. And that's sort of a common theme that goes through the whole movie, right? He runs through the whole movie. It's a really cool thing. Well, in our text today... The author of Hebrews is telling his audience to run. You could say he's saying, run, Christian, run. In many nuanced ways, he's going to unpack what this race looks like. But what he's saying again and again, and what he's saying to us today, he's saying, run, Christian, run. You have been given a race to run. In fact, the text says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run, Christian, run. Let's read the verses. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 12. Of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Amen. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And in light of these 16 names and these other prophets that were alluded to in the chapter, 11th chapter, the previous chapter, uh, these examples of faith that we've been studying over the last several weeks, uh, and especially inside, uh, in light of Jesus' own model, perfect model of endurance, the author is saying that believers are called to endure as runners in a race. You and me, as believers in Christ, we are in a race, and this is the metaphor that the author is using, we are to run, believer, run. Run, Christian, run. We are runners in a race. And that word race is an interesting word. It, it it, it harkens back to the Greek games and the assembly of people to watch a race sort of in a competition. But uh, uh, an aspect of that word race is also, it means struggle, battle. It's, uh, the Greek word is agon, I think is how you pronounce it, which sounds a lot like agony. And if anyone has ever run a long race, you understand agony. Because a long race that requires endurance is often an agonizing experience. And if you think about that metaphorically in the Christian life... A long, faithful life in a world that is opposed to that can often be an agonizing exercise. So how do we do it? 
How do you and I remain faithful in this race that God has set before us? How do we endure to the end? That's really the message of Hebrews. Remember, we've been saying from the very very beginning, these are a, a group of very weary and tired Christians who are tempted to give up and turn back and step off the track, to quit the race, to give up. And the author has been saying every which way that he can, don't give up, persevere to the end. We just read the names of 16 saints that that were examples of a persevering faith in chapter 11 as an example to his audience, both them then and us today. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we endure to the end? I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a runner. In my younger years, I was a runner, but I was a distance, a sprinter. But then when I got older, uh, I needed to lose some weight. And uh, so uh, I I one time mentioned to my wife, uh, sort of off, off cuff, off, just sort of like in the moment that I wanted to run a marathon. And she laughed at me uh, because she knew my personality. She knew that I would never run a marathon. So out of spite, I was really motivated to run that marathon so I could prove my wife wrong. So I had great motivation. And so my wife and I began to talk about, okay, let's run a marathon. Let's do this. We're like in our early to mid thirties. And so we got some advice, went on some websites, did some, some research, and we got together this four to six month plan to kind of build our miles up all the way up to like a 20 mile training run. And we did all of it and, and it was wonderful. And, and we had to learn all these ways to sort of make it happen. We had to set up childcare for our kids and we had to change our diet. And then as we got ready to run the actual marathon, there's this whole way to fuel your body for that run. The, the, the diet and the sleep patterns leading up to the run, the day of the race, what you should eat, when you should eat it, how you should hydrate, what you should hydrate with so you can run the race with effectiveness. And we did it. It was great. And, and there's not much different when it comes to the spiritual race. In fact, I'm going to give you all three of my outline points today up front because here's the author in our three verses. He gives us an example of what it is we are to do when it comes to running this race. Number one, to run the race that is before us, we have to have motivation to run. And so, so it's... And embedded in our text, we see what is the motivation for us as followers of Jesus to run the race that he set before us. But then there's also embedded in our text today strategy. What, what does it look like? If you and I are going to, we, we want to plan to run this race with effectiveness, there is a strategy embedded in our text today for how it is you and I run this, this faith race with endurance. And then also, thirdly, in our text today, there is, there is a, uh, uh, it gives us the idea of what is the fuel for the race. So we, we've got motivation to run, we've got the strategy of the run, and we have the fuel of the run, and we'll go through that here in a few moments. But God has put a race before you and before me, praise God, and we need to run it. So run, Christian, run. Any other race we want to run is futile, and there's lots of opportunities Lots of temptations, lots of other voices claiming that they have a race that's important for us to run. There's only one race that's worthy of running. There's no other race under than this. Every other race is futile. And the author of Hebrews, for nine and a half chapters, he was helping his audience understand why it is that this race that that is running towards Jesus is worthy. So what he did for nine and a half chapters of Hebrews is he he just consistently and beautifully painted a portrait of Jesus. That we would just step back and see the sufficiency of Jesus, the, the, the priesthood of Jesus, the, the majesty of Jesus. For nine and a half chapters, he is greater than the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. Jesus has a better priesthood. He offers a better covenant. He, he, he is a better sacrifice. And then in 
chapter 10, right in the middle of the chapter, he begins to say, okay, in light of this beautiful Jesus, there's nothing else to pursue in this world. Everything else is a false God. This is the one, this is the one uh, orienting point, the one goal, the one, the one place that we're to journey toward is in Christ. In light of that, he begins to tell his audience halfway through chapter 10, hold fast to him. Hold fast to Jesus. Do not let go, no matter how hard it gets, how weary you become, receive the reward that is awaiting all who are faithful at the end. And then in chapter 11, we just see all these portraits or these depictions of what a persevering faith looks like. And we saw these examples in the last couple of weeks. We, we've, been, we've been looking at these different examples. And what we've seen as we've looked through chapter 11 of Hebrews is we see that a genuine faith, a, a persevering faith, it, re, it relies on the, God, the promises of God. A persevering faith, it trusts God will do what he said he'll do. A persevering faith that looks to the future with confidence, knowing that it's in the hands of God, that the, that the end is already written. Regardless of present circumstances, I can look to the future with confidence. And we also learned that, that a persevering faith trusts God in the midst of danger and distress. Confident in God's protection. And all those Old Testament saints that we learned of and, and read about in chapter 11, here in the beginning of chapter 12, he says we are surrounded by a great a cloud, so great a cloud of witnesses. That's the witnesses. That's the cloud. Both those named here and all those faithful saints that have gone before us. I was just talking to a brother in the hallway who, who lost his father this week. A faithful man who lived a faithful life. And we were just talking about how awesome is it to know that your father is a part of that cloud of witnesses now. He's finished his race. And he's with Jesus. And he's cheering us on. And my buddy said, he's like, yeah, I, I'm bringing my dad to church this morning. So cool. There's a finish line. The agony stops. It's temporary. The run doesn't last forever. Christ meets us in the race to, to, to strengthen us for endurance. And so it's possible, church. And I know that I often find myself, in, as a part of church leadership, of having conversations in Christian circles of the really heartbreaking, high-profile stories of Christian leaders that fail out of ministry. And there's a lot of them. I know there's a lot of those stories that, that hit the headlines. It's heartbreaking. But I just want to remind you that for every high-profile leader that fails out of ministry— or turns away from the faith, or, 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 or rejects Jesus, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of faithful saints who never wrote a book, who never had a podcast, who never worried about their platform, but who just faithfully served the Lord until they died. Thousands of them, millions of them, billions of them that have gone before us. And they're a part of the, that cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on. So don't be disheartened when some celebrity Christian leader fails in a sensational way. There are so many examples of faithfulness. They're just not in the newspapers. So be encouraged by those saints who have gone before us, who have exemplified this enduring faith. And so the author, as we go back, I want to work through these three points, take a little bit of a deeper look at how it is this author is urging us to run this race with endurance. Number one, we got to have motivation to run. we got to have motivation to run. And, and what is in the text that gives us motivation to run? Look at the first part of verse 1. The author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Like I mentioned just a few moments ago, we just read of 16 of those witnesses in chapter 11. But there's countless other witnesses that have gone before us. 
There's countless millions that have gone before us. And I heard one author talk about it this way. He said, for us as believers, picture it this way. Picture that we are running a race in a coliseum. And the coliseum is filled with saints who are for us. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the ultimate of home field advantage. And we're running in this coliseum, this race of faith. We have the baton in the relay race right now. If you're, if you're drawing breath and you're on this side of glory and you're in Christ, you have the baton in your hand and you're running that race of endurance for the glory of God. And we're in a coliseum and there's this great cloud of witnesses that is cheering us on every step of the way. I can think about when I ran my first marathon. And I remember we, we were way up in northern Wisconsin and we were running on this old railroad track that had been converted to trail, which was a great place to run a first marathon. And in rural northern Wisconsin, there's like 19 people that live in that whole entire area. And so it's very rural. And so you're running in the first 24 miles, you're being cheered on by cows and hay bales. And that's about it. And it's not very inspiring. You're just trying to gut through it and you're just trying to make it. You're counting your steps. You're looking at your watch and... But then, you know, you start getting into this little town of Ashland, Wisconsin, about maybe mile 24, mile 25, and uh, there's people start coming out and, and like lining the, the route. And they're ringing cowbells and they're cheering you on. And it's pretty exciting. And even in fact, the first time I ran, my buddy Jeff, who lives up in northern Wisconsin, he actually had our kids and his kids piled in the vehicle and he was his drive. And like every three miles, he'd come out, hey, you're doing great, you're doing great. And they drive and they, they were actually cheering us on all the way along the way. But when we get to those last few miles, more and more people come out and they're cheering you on. But, uh, but man, it's hard. Mile 25, mile 26, especially if you're a guy like me who's not used to running long distances, I'm in pain. My knees hurt, my hips hurt. I want to step off the track. But then you come into town where the finish line is. And all these people, all the townspeople are there. But what's even cooler is you see all these people that were in the race that have finished before you. And they loop around the finish line and they come back. And that last point, two miles, there's hundreds of people just cheering you on. And you know what that's like. You get this surge of adrenaline. You're like, I'm not as tired as I thought I was. I can keep going. I'm a part of something bigger than myself. And suddenly you're just like this track star. You can hear chariots of fire and it's amazing. And then you watch video later, you're like, man, I was running so slow. I felt like I was sprinting that last 100 meters. But it's amazing. And it's these men and women who finish the race who are cheering you on that last bit, the hardest part. That's the picture here. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And they're friends. And we have home field advantage. Think of Noah up in those stands. Think of Noah up in those stands cheering you on. He's saying every minute of labor is worth it. You labor for the Lord, people think you're crazy. Every minute of labor is worth it. It will bring salvation to your household. Think of Moses in that stand, cheering for you. He could have chosen the household of Pharaoh and lived a comfortable life, but he's saying, no, 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 don't choose the world. God has something greater for you. It may be difficult now, but there's something greater in store for you. Choose God. These are heroes of ours. They've modeled for you and for me what the life of faith looks like. And we're reminded when we read these stories and we think of this cloud of witnesses, we're motivated. We're reminded that it's worth losing everything in order to gain God. And how do we, how do we remind ourselves of these stories, of these saints, of these examples of faithfulness, these, these depictions of persevering faith? Well, we read them in the scriptures. That's why time in the Bible is so important. That's why a rich devotional life is so important to fuel our faith. 
We read about these stories, and it's not the people that we emulate, it's the God whom they serve. It's the God who empowers them. It's the one in whom their faith is directed. But we read these stories of real people who endured with a persevering faith in the midst of trying circumstances. They've gone before us. Abel says to us from the stands, it's worth it. He lost his life. It's worth it. Press on. Run, Christian, run. It's Abraham in the stands. And Abraham is saying, I waited my whole life for the fulfillment of God's promises. And I was an old man when I finally got that son. And I never saw the promises fulfilled. My hope was in something yet to come. But he says to you, be faithful and patient in the waiting. Press on. A long obedience in the same direction is a noble life. God will fulfill the promise he's made. And I think about this picture of Relay. And that was Jeremy who brought that, that picture into my mind this week. You know, that, that, that picture of Relay, I love track and field. We're a track and field family. And my favorite event to watch is the 4x4. Four four. It's the last event of every track and field, of, of every track uh, event. And all the, all the t- teams are out on the track. And you got this team at that corner, this team at that corner. There's, there's all these kids around the track and those four poor souls who have to run the four by four. Oh man, that's a horrible race. But it's so fun to watch because everybody is cheering on the runners. But what's really cool is you see the first leg of the race. He runs a 400 or she runs the 400, passes the baton off to a friend. And as soon as that baton goes in their friend's hand, guess what they start doing? They start cheering. And the second leg cheers the third leg. And the third leg cheers the fourth leg. And the fourth leg, when he finishes, everybody celebrates. You've got the baton in your hand. There are people that are cheering you on that have handed the baton off to you. And you're going to be handing your baton off one day. And you're going to cheer on the people whose baton you hand off. This is great motivation for the race. Amen? Run, Christian, run. Second thing is we need strategy of the run. What is the strategy of the run that the author gives us here in the second part of verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. Let me, read, let me read that for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here's the strategy part. Let us, lay also, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I think the author here gives us three things to think about when it comes to strategy. I'm going to share three things. Number one is cut weight. The author tells us to cut weight. Let us also lay aside every weight. This is common sense, right? If you're going to run a marathon, if you're going to run an endurance race, you do not want needless weight in your pack, in your pockets, or in your body. You want, to, you want to lose and cut that weight. It's hard to run endurance when you're carting around extra, extra weight that adds no value to the race, but simply weighs you down. And as, as you know, I love to backpack. It's my favorite passion, and I still pinch myself that I get to take men from my church backpacking and call it work. It's awesome. I love the backpack. You know, and we did a trip this weekend. It was actually not an easy hike. It was about five miles up and five miles back. But it was a shorter hike for me. So I can take a little bit more. I can be a little more liberal in what I throw on my backpack because I'm not carrying it that far. So I can have some extra weight because it wasn't really an endurance hike. But I've done endurance hikes, 100-mile-plus hikes, where I don't have the opportunity to refuel anywhere. I have to have everything on my back from day one. And I can tell you what, what planning for that sort of a backpacking trip looks like. 
It involves having all of your backpacking gear in your living room and a scale on your kitchen counter, and you're weighing every single item. And you have to make calculated and thoughtful decisions of what to bring and what not to bring because you cannot waste a single ounce. I've got my favorite fly rod here, but it weighs X amount of pounds. And I got this backpacking fly rod that I'm not very fond of, but it works and it's three ounces less. So I got to take that one. Oh, I've got my favorite sleeping bag. I love this sleeping bag. It's a 15 degree bag, but I don't think it's going to get that cold. And I have this other bag that I really don't like, but it's a 30 degree bag and it's sufficient and it weighs two ounces less. I'm taking that bag. I love steak and real potatoes and sausage logs and real cheese when I backpack. But when you're hiking 100 miles and you're 10 10 days in the wilderness, yeah, it's going to be styrofoam, freeze-dried nastiness because it's got calories and it gets gets you through. You've got to count every single ounce. You've got to cut weight. The author says, in this Christian life, in this race that God has set before you and me, we've got to lay aside every weight. These aren't sins. My, my, my favorite fly rods, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not appropriate for the journey. Nothing wrong with my 15-degree bag. It's a great bag. It's just not appropriate for the I don't need it. It's excessive. So this is what we're invited to consider right now. If, if our purpose for drawing breath is to run the race that God has put before us, what weight am I shouldering that is hindering my progress today? It might not be overtly sinful. It's just not necessary. It's hard to think about these things. These aren't sins, but hindrances. It could be something otherwise good. But in your case, it weighs you down spiritually. And it requires, in this moment, honest, spirit-empowered discernment as we examine our lives. God has given you a race to run. It's not the same race he gave the person to your left to run or the person to your right to run. You have a unique race God has placed before you. We're not to play play the comparing game here. But God has given you a race. You're to stick to your race. So I've been asking my friends and people just to consider, hey, what what are those weights You know, if this isn't something that's overtly sinful because he talks about sin in the next breath, if this is just these things that hinder our progress or hinder our ability to endure on the spiritual race, what might those be? We had some interesting conversations around the fire this this weekend, and I was talking to my son. My son is 20, and he's a a Gen Zer, and I said, son, what do you think think this might be? What are some of these weights that hinder you as a a Generation Z college student? What What is the weight? He's like, for me, Dad? He's like, it's it's the fear of financial security. He's like, I, I can see how I could replace the goal of my Christian life. The goal of my spiritual journey could be I need to get a good job and make good money and have financial security. And in so doing, I could actually put weight on my shoulders that, that are going to take away from me running with endurance the race God has set before me. I said, well, thank goodness your father is independently wealthy because you're not going to have to worry about any of that. <laughs> I said nothing uh, of the sort. But I've been asking people, I wonder what you might say to me today. I wonder if you and I had an opportunity to sit for a while together and just kind of discern and talk and fellowship about what's going on in your world, where your goals are, what are are the primary core values in your life. I wonder what some of that extra weight might be in your life. Perhaps it's a friendship or an association. Maybe it's an event or a place that's just not good for you to go for whatever reason. It could be a habit or a pleasure, a certain bent towards entertainment, 
Maybe it's a life goal, a career ambition, a hobby. Not inherently bad, just not helpful. What are those things in your life today that weigh you down? What hinders you in running the race God has set before you? What are those things in your life that deplete you and undermine your spiritual journey? I think one good, perhaps, I just thought this as I was walking over this morning, perhaps one good diagnostic would be to chart your time. Where do you spend your time? I think oftentimes where we spend our time is a really good indicator of where our priorities lie. And if the majority of your time is spent in a way that's not fueling the race God has given you to run, maybe that's an indicator that you need to start talking to the Lord about what weight you need to cut in your life. Cut weight. Second part of the strategy is to cut sin, right? Look at the second part of verse 1 there. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That phrase, which clings so closely, is the translation of a single Greek word. Other translations say, uh, and sin that so easily entangles, or and sin that so easily trips us up, or which doth so easily beset us. That's, that's a single Greek word that simply means skillfully surrounding or besetting. The idea here is that there is these sins that, that are persistently and, and sort of in a really secretive way threatening our progress, entangling our feet, getting in the way of our pursuit of Jesus. One, one preacher called them darling sins. He said these are the darling sins in our life. These are those sins that are more like indulgences that, that easily worm their way into our life. They taste sweet. There's some sin that tastes like rocks or tastes bitter. This is the sin that tastes sweet. It's a circling sin. It's a darling sin that, that is easily besetting. It woos us into it. These are sins which always seem to be within arm's reach. These are the sins that we tend to justify to our friends and to others. These are sins that, worse yet, we even spiritualize when we engage in them, a little harder to diagnose. What are these sins in your life and in my life which cling so closely? What are those sins that entangle you and hinder your pursuit of Jesus and prevent you from running the race God has set before you? Do you covet what others have? Perhaps it's envy or gossip. Maybe it's criticism or, or laziness or hatred or lust or unthankfulness or pride. Only you know. I've been praying this week and as I was in the back of the service while we were all singing, I was just praying that God by his spirit would bring appropriate conviction into our lives as we begin to discern. So what is that darling sin? What is that besetting sin, that sin that skillfully surrounds you, that sin that entangles your feet? What is that sin that hinders your running? that keeps you from running the race that God has set before you. Name it. Identify it. Write it down right now. If God has put something in your heart and mind and you know what it is, identify it in this moment so we can confess of that sin and repent of that sin. Whatever sin it is, it has to be stripped away. It has to be cut off. It has to be left behind. We have to cut weight. We have to cut sin. And how we cut sin is, in, is this third part of the strategy. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. Our sin is put to death at the cross. Jesus kills our sin. The author says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Ken Hughes puts it this way. I think this is an interesting observation. He says, by insisting that we focus on Jesus instead of the name Christ or the title Christ, the writer is calling us as readers to focus on the humanity of Jesus as we saw it exemplified on earth. I had this conversation with one of the brothers this weekend when we were backpacking. We were talking about the role of of what it means to be a man in the church and and what prevents men from getting involved in the church and why do men tend to hold other relationships at arm's length and we had a lot of good discussion about that. But I was reminded of that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and I was reminding of that scene when Jesus takes his disciples out of the city the night that he's betrayed and he takes them down across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane and then he takes Peter, James, and John, his three close, closest disciples, that inner circle, if you will, and they go with him into the garden. And then he goes a little further and he falls on his face and he begins to pray this prayer, Father, take this cup of suffering from me, if you will, but not my will be done but yours. But do you remember he goes back multiple times to his friends and he says, pray with me, stay with me. Pray with me. Be here with me. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. And I'm thinking, man, if Jesus, the son of the living God, needed brothers in Christ or, 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 or traveling companions to be with him in his moment of greatest agony, how much more do we need people in our life who are going to help shoulder the burdens and this cloud of witnesses both ahead of us and those traveling companions alongside of us? We need that help. And as we look at the humanity of Jesus, the faithfulness he displayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, those men got to watch as he picked himself up off the ground and as he journeyed toward the cross and he was faithful and he endured to the end. They got to watch that and see that exemplified. So the author invokes the name Jesus here and we're looking at the faithfulness of Jesus. We're keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And I think about that even when it comes to just basic running. You know, the metaphor is running here, but if you ever coach running, I coach sprinters for years, and you always tell sprinters that, that every movement of their body needs to point towards the finish line. Don't waste your arm movements. Don't let your head go back and forth. You've got you to drive your knees. But, but very importantly, as a sprinter, you've got to keep your eyes on the horizon or on the finish line. Where your eyes go, you go. The author is saying, we, in, this, in this journey, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the one who puts our sin to death. He's the one that endured the cross, despising the shame. The cross was despised in the ancient world. It was a shameful way to die. But the author says that Jesus despised the shame. He thought nothing of the shame of the cross. He dismissed it as nothing. One author says the application to the reader is clear. We too must endure to the end, being willing to endure any suffering since we know that we will ultimately enjoy a great reward. And so Jesus endured the cross. The physical pain was excruciating. The the spiritual pain was beyond comprehension. But he also triumphed. And we we keep our eyes on him. We're constantly reminding ourselves of where these besetting sins go to die. We run to the cross and we leave our sin at the cross. It's there that Jesus nails our sins to the cross. We look to Jesus and we, we preach the gospel to ourselves and others and we bring, we bring ourselves and we bring our sin to the cross. We run to the cross day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second. That's where the sin is left. We, 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 we go to the cross, we, we place that sinister, easily besetting, wooing sin at the cross. Jesus puts it to death. This race can only be run with Jesus. It cannot be run apart from him. It can't. This is not a self-sufficient race. Otherwise, we would be Pharisees. This is a Christ-dependent race that disciples of Jesus run. And we run it with him. And so we see here 
to run this race before us, we see the motivation to run. We see the strategy of the run. We cut weight. We, we cut sin. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We are to run. Christian, run. But then, as I said earlier, it's a long race. It's tiring. It's, it's weary. What do we do in this race when we grow faint-hearted or when we grow weary? And that's our third point. We look at verse 3. We see fuel for the run. We have fuel for this run to help us endure and keep going. I, was, I wasn't super familiar with the original story of the marathon. I knew it involved the Greeks and all that. But it's an interesting story of this courier named, I think it was Depides, I think was his name. Phidopides was this, was this Greek uh, courier who, who was, was taking a message from Marathon back to Athens that the Greeks had prevailed over the over the Persians, but, but if you look at the story, that, in that few days, this, this courier had run like 200 miles, delivering messages all across the region, and, and the story goes, he runs into Athens, he goes before these magistrates who are in session, and he gives this great news that the, the Greeks have prevailed, he says, joy to you, we've won, and then he collapses and dies, as soon as he announces the good news, and I'm, I'm thinking about, that could be Metaphor could be taken one of two ways. One, he finished his race and he collapsed and it was great. It was, a, it was a story of success. Or it could be taken the other way, like dude did not fuel himself. He ran 200 miles, didn't drink any water, and he died of dehydration or a heart attack right there in front of everybody else. We've got to fuel ourselves for the race. If you've ever run a marathon or a long race, you know that all along the route they have hydration stations where you can grab water or electrolytes or, or fruit, bananas, uh, oranges, they have gel packs, granola bars. You have to fuel yourself or you're going to bonk. And when you bonk, it's a horrible place to be. Your body just says, nope, you're not going anymore. So you have to fuel yourself. And so the author tells us in verse 3, what, what keeps us going when we're weary and faint-hearted? Here's what he says. Consider him. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We are to consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners. Consider that long litany of hostility he plowed through, as one translation says. Think of all the hostility he, ended, he endured from sinful people. We consider Jesus. We consider he is the example of an enduring faith. We consider his steadfastness. We consider his resolve. We consider his perfect faithfulness in the face of hatred and hostility so that we can also endure. But we don't have to just consider Consider the tragedy, the suffering in the cross, because we, as we studied last week, it's a story of tragedy, but ultimately it's a story of triumph. We consider the triumph of Jesus, that he's victorious. We consider that today, as our author says, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We remember that Jesus endured the cross for a reward. We remind ourselves that there is a finish line to this race. The agony that you might be in, the agon that you're in, it's, it's temporary. And we fix our eyes on the exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father. And we remind ourselves of the glory that awaits the saints who run faithfully. So the author says to them then and us today, don't give up. Persevere to the end. There is great reward. You're running a race that is so worthy. It's going to be difficult, but there is such great reward for the faithful. The author of, of James reminds us how, how short this life is. James says, what is your life? When we think of the totality of our life, it feels like it's forever. But the author of James says, what is your life for you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? Paul expands on that in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. 
Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, troubles are achieving for us an external glory, or an, an eternal glory, that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so this is the fuel for our race. We consider Jesus. We consider his example of faithfulness, and we consider his triumph and his, his exaltation. And so for you and me today, no matter where we might find ourselves in the journey, there's somebody that might have lots of energy. You're like, man, I'm good. I'm mile one. I'm good. I'm running. I'm, I feel great. And there might be some of you that are at mile 25 and a half, and you are so weary. Your head is tired. Your legs are tired. Your body is tired. Your soul is tired. Put this in your mind right now. You're going to finish. With God's help. You've got to plan on finishing this race. Expect to finish this race in faithfulness. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Finish line might be God giving you a glorious release from this, this life in death. It might be the return of Christ. But for all of us, glory awaits. The new heavens, the new earth, a better rest, as the author of Hebrews puts it. In chapter 4, he says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Don't settle for a lesser than finish line. Don't settle for a counterfeit finish line. Retirement, though good, is not the finish line. Raising faithful kids is a wonderful goal. It's not the finish line. That vacation that you can't wait to go on next summer, the wonderful and a blessing from God, is not the finish line. The weekend is not the finish line. And I say this with utter humility. The healing you're asking God to bring into your life, the wonderful, is not the finish line. We have to train our eyes to remain on the prize. We have to constantly fuel on the example of Christ. That is our fuel. That is our hope. How can you and I ensure a strong finish? How can you and I avoid spiritual collapse? He tells us. Consider him. Consider Jesus. Carefully, conscientiously, constantly consider Jesus. Consider his resolve, consider his endurance, consider his confidence, consider his faithfulness, consider his triumph. The secret to finishing strong is to be utterly absorbed with Jesus. To be completely absorbed with Jesus, we have to cast away whatever weighs us down. Cut weight. We've got to cut off whatever sins are attempting to entangle us. We've got to turn away from whatever seeks to distract us. We are to have a singular focus on Christ who has set for us a perfect example of a race well run. Read the Gospels. Read Matthew. Read Mark. Read Luke. Read John. Saturate yourselves in Christ. Sing songs to him. Speak of him. Consider Jesus. And at the end of your life, your life of faithfulness, may you and me be able to say like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. Church, run the race. Run, Christian, run. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful that we, God, that we've been given a, the example of your son, this forerunner in the life of faith, God. I pray for, for those of us that are present this morning, God, you are intimately aware of the station of life each one of us may find ourselves in today, and you're intimately aware of what awaits each one of us around the next bend. You have ordained our breaths. You have planned out our lives. God, you know the race that we're running. God, I just pray, Father, I pray. God, I pray that you would just remind us that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. God, may that be an awesome motivation for us to run this race of faith. God, I pray that you would just give us wisdom and insight and faithfulness to to identify what are those those things in our life that are weighing us down. God, help us know what what weight to cut in order to remain faithful to you, God. Help us to identify those sins that so easily entangle us, God, that we can bring them to you and you can put them to death for us. God, help us to fix our eyes on you, look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, have your way with us, God, that we individually and collectively as a body of believers would would run this race to your glory. God, that we'd run it with faithfulness, God. I pray for those here today who are especially weary and faint-hearted in this moment. God, I just pray that you would draw near to them right now. God, you would make yourself known to them right now. God, that by your spirit, you would just infuse life and vitality into their bones and into their soul and into their hearts and minds. God, give them a vision of you that they could walk in faithfulness and they could endure to the end for your glory. God, help us, like the apostle Paul, to forget what is behind and strained towards what is ahead. God, help us to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which you have called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.